Hey everybody, and welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm Molly Herford. And I'm Peter Glasper. So we're coming at you just a few days before New Year's, which is actually perfect timing for this episode. We've kind of almost been saving it for just such an occasion. Yeah, definitely sleep is a big topic for 2016, and I think you'll see it a lot more in 2017. And I know for a lot of the athletes I work with and for myself, it's it's something that we need to be constantly working on. And um, I think a lot of really cool research is coming out of it. Absolutely. It's interesting. I'm actually right in the middle of doing another article actually over at Bicycling Magazine. It might be out by the time this episode comes out or when it does come out, we'll put it in the show notes. But I tracked my sleep for a month and I've always said I'm a excellent sleeper, phenomenal sleeper, if you will. Uh, but definitely sleep tracking has shown me there are still places I can be cleaning mine up, especially as we switch time zones a fair amount. And I didn't quite realize the toll that jet lag and unfamiliar sleeping environments really cause for me. Yeah, and I think the piece that Amy, our guest Amy Bender today, Dr. Amy Doctor, Bender, yeah. uh, who is a, specializes in studying sleep, um, she has a great Twitter account, which we'll also link to in the show notes, um, where you can sort of follow the, the evolution of uh, sleep research and sort of tactics for sleep and um, all, all things related to sleep. Um, but what we talk about today is, you know, a lot of these things like how to improve your sleep, but then also, you know, you might feel like you get sleep, but there's a lot of signs that, you know, whether that's not recovering fast enough or, you know, being a little groggy or abuse of caffeine or, you know, things like this, just even our mood and stuff can be affected. So just falling asleep sometimes isn't enough. We also are increasingly concerned about the quality of that sleep and how many sort of deep sleep cycles. So we get into a lot of this quality of sleep as much as the quantity. Yeah, actually, I wasn't talking to Amy, but I was talking to another researcher on the topic of sleep. And she mentioned to me that falling asleep instantly is not always a sign of good quality sleep. Like if your sleep score is 100%, that means you went to sleep as soon as your head hit the pillow, which is actually usually not such a great sign. It should take you a little bit to fall asleep. Otherwise, it's sort of a warning that you're pretty like unrecovered yeah and certainly during the day that's you know you should be ready for bed you know around that 9 or 10 or ten thirty type time at night but definitely if you're able to fall asleep at a moment's notice you know sometimes that can be a bit of a warning flag absolutely uh so yeah in this talk we you know discuss a bunch of the stuff to do with sleep hygiene with amy and a bunch of things talking about like melatonin use that i thought were super interesting i know a ton of athletes that really sort of rely on melatonin but that may not be the best thing for you Mm -hmm. yeah we talk about sleep position which is something i'm always very interested in because to me it's it's really part of our our daily movement is that the positions we assume during uh, sleep as much as during the day we are sleeping for an extended period of time so we talk a bit about that um what else are we going to i think the one thing i loved and maybe this is just because we spend a fair amount of time traveling so i've missed a few nights of sleep recently uh thinking about sleep as like a weekly sort of thing versus the day-to-day so if you miss a few hours of sleep or you know You have like one bad night, not letting that completely screw up how you feel about the week. Yeah, and related to that would be, you know, with athletes before a big event, you know, not sleeping the day before. So we talk about how that isn't a huge deal on that same idea where your chronic sleep load or that sleep for that week or month is is as important, if not more important than just that single night before. Mm -hmm. Great for people who have a lot of pre-race nerves and sort of have trouble sleeping the night before. So if you can... Kind of, yeah, bank that sleep within the week before you're, you're in good shape. Uh, all of this talk has made me want to go take a nap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It's, I think, a very valuable one, one that you might uh, find useful here in this week coming into the new year. Um, yeah, lots of resources and, yeah, hopefully something that will help you enhance your training as we get into 2017. Absolutely. All right, let's get into it. Enjoy our talk with Dr. Amy Bender. All right, welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm really excited for today's guest. Amy Bender is with us. She is a sleep scientist. She's based in Calgary, Alberta right now, and she works with lots of different athletes for Team Canada. Um, she's got PhD and master's degrees in sports, or it's not in sports psychology, but experimental psychology. Um, so very excited to hear about sort of that path 
um, as a lot of our listeners are sort of going through school and interested in different careers in sport. So it'll be very interesting to hear sort of how she progressed through the sort of uh, psychology streams and then ended up researching sleep and working with athletes of all types. Uh, so Amy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Yeah, I'm really excited. I really like sleep. The more Molly and I were talking <laughs> about this, I realized I have probably every or not, maybe not every gizmo, there's lots of gizmos, but, uh, you know, a lot of different stuff. So I'm excited to sort of see, you know, your opinions and what you feel like is working and stuff to, to help people sleep better. Um, and just, you know, your, your Twitter account, I love, I, you know, that's sort of how I found you was on Twitter and lots of cool articles and stuff about sort of how we can optimize sleep. And, um, yeah, so definitely we'll link to all your Twitter and stuff so people can enjoy those same articles that got me excited. Um, but why don't we start just maybe giving us sort of your, 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 your path, I guess, through school, psychology, maybe even your own sporting career and how that slowly got you towards this, this sleep scientist status that you're at now. Yeah, so I have always been an athlete. Um, I played multiple sports in high school. I ended up playing college basketball at Cal State University, uh, San Bernardino, and played ball there um, in the early 2000s and ended up getting a degree in psychology there and started off working as a childcare worker, working with at-risk youth. And I, I thought that was a very rewarding job, but it wasn't necessarily intellectually stimulating. And so I was kind of looking for something else. And my aunt, Kathy, at the time was actually a sleep technologist. And so I went to those sleep laboratory where she was working and she kind of showed me what she did and um, showed, you know, the different wires to measure physiological variables in patients and how you would look at different sleep disorders and brain waves and those kind of things. And it really got me interested. So I ended up coming back to Spokane where I was living and pretty much called up every single sleep lab in the city just to see if they were hiring or seeing how I could get involved and volunteer and observe and that kind of thing. And ended up um, kind of volunteering at the sleep disorders clinic there under Keith Knittle, who is the manager. And he said, you know, keep checking back. We're going to be hiring soon uh, for me to work as a sleep technologist. And as it turns out, the Washington State University was um, setting up a sleep laboratory at the time, brand new sleep research laboratory, looking at cognitive performance um, during sleep deprivation. And Keith actually knew Greg Belenke, who was the director at the time, and um, ended up getting a job through that type of connection, which is pretty crazy. And so I started off uh, working as a sleep, sleep tech there at the Sleep and Performance Research Center at Washington State. And my job was to look at just train research assistants on how to do the sleep recordings, how to hook up participants. I would score the sleep EEG and look at different stages of sleep and analyze the EEG. And one of the most interesting parts of that job actually was to try to keep participants awake for 62 hours. We had one experiment where we would have to keep participants up for 62 hours. And oh my gosh. How? Yeah. How did you do so, that? <laughs> so the one thing, you know, we're not supposed to, we're not, Basically, the one thing we were supposed to do was just to say their name, and then it would wake them up. We couldn't actually touch them. We couldn't, you know, have them do exercise or anything like that. We would just call out their name, and they would wake up. And um, so I got a lot of uh, valuable experience working there as a sleep technologist, and then felt like I was kind of at a ceiling and wanted to pursue graduate school. And so I continued to work there um, and got my degree, my master's degree in experimental psychology, focusing on sleep, and then ended up getting my PhD there as well. And, um, and at the same time, ha having two kids, which is kind of a crazy thing to do during graduate school. But um, during my graduate 
During my second year, there was, I saw, I got an email about a talk on sport performance, or sleep and sport performance put on by Dr. Charles Samuels, who's in Calgary, who I'm working with now, and ended up going to the talk, absolutely loved it. He was working with Canadian national team athletes and consulting for, for some NHL teams, and just kind of started the conversation that that you know, I wanted to do a postdoc after I'm done in this area, and um, just kind of started a collaboration, did a few abstracts together, and then towards the end of my graduate career, we ended up applying for funding through my tax, which is a Canadian not-for-profit organization linking academia with industry, and ended up getting funding through that. And so now here I am a year and a half into the postdoc and just work, being able to work with a bunch of Canadian national team athletes and various teams um, is, is very interesting. I love what I'm doing here. Yeah, that sounds really cool. So just to clarify, because I think sometimes, especially younger people going through school, miss that, you know, they think they have to progress right through. So you did an undergraduate, and then did you do full eight years in the sleep as a sleep technician and then go back to school? Yeah, so I did the four years of the undergrad. I did, um, I was out of school for a while, and then I did four years as a sleep technologist. And then it took me five years to do the PhD. So yeah, I did. I definitely didn't go straight through from undergrad to graduate school. It kind of took me a while to figure out that that's what I wanted to do. And I think that's awesome. Like just that practical experience, you know, you were probably able to make a bit of money too, but you'd also be able to sort of see what you liked and learn about, you know, different things that different researchers or, you know, bosses or whoever might tell you about, right? Mm-hmm, definitely. And, um, yeah, it was just luck that I ended up starting off at that sleep, you know, the Sleep and Performance Research Center, which is honestly, uh, Dr. Greg Belenke and Hans Van Dongen, they're one of the top sleep scientists in the world, and it's just looking back kind of amazing that I got that experience early on. Yeah, it's funny how things work out, because you never would have been able to plan that, but now it, it makes so much sense given what you're doing. But. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder, you know, related to that tracking of sleep and stuff, can you tell us a little bit, like, you know, if you start working with athletes, you know, what are maybe one or two of the ways you normally would assess someone's sleep? Like, it, we all know, you know, our seven to nine hours of sleep, you know, we're supposed to have sleep hygiene and stuff, but how do you as a, you know, a, a, as a coach go in and, and assess that? Yeah, so the main tool that we're using right now, which is one of the projects I'm working on, is the athlete sleep screening questionnaire, and we're we're trying to validate that questionnaire further. Um, we published in 2015 in British Journal of Sport Medicine, and now we're trying to further validate that questionnaire in over 200 Canadian national team athletes. So that questionnaire in particular, you know, you, you wouldn't have access to the questionnaire at this point, but if you're a coach, you would want to be looking at three main factors, um, which is quantity, so the amount of sleep that the athlete's getting. And we know that the normal adult needs seven to nine hours of sleep, and, and the athlete needs more. Um, and so quantity is an important factor. And then you need to look at quality, so which incorporates sleep disorder, so is the athlete snoring? Um, you know, how is their quality of sleep? Are they waking up refreshed? Are they looking at electronic devices right before bed, which can impact our quality? Um, so quality is important as well. And then the timing of the sleep. So when we're younger, we're more biologically driven to be more of a night owl versus when we get older, you know, we lean more towards the morningness. So is the sleep period occurring within that? preferred window. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So I mean, it, it's it's not necessarily rocket science, but there's a lot of tools and stuff out there, you know, including sort of this questionnaire where we try and formalize, um, you know, these ideas of how fresh do you feel in the morning? Are you waking up? Are you having trouble going to sleep? Mm -hmm. uh, and then you're saying even with your, your tracking sheet, you're trying to look a bit at the hygiene and the routines ahead of time as well? 
Yeah, so within the questionnaire, we're asking about caffeine use. So if someone's drinking, you know, five cups a day, it's kind of a red flag to us that something might be going on. You know, why are they needing this caffeine to stay alert? Um, looking at electronic device use, because we know that that impacts our, our brainwave activity, you know, even 30 minutes 30-minute exposure before bedtime has been shown to decrease our slow-wave activity, which is very important for athletes who are trying to recover, because this is this is the point where tissues are being repaired or growth hormone is released. So we're kind of, what we've seen so far in our athletes is that 90% of the athletes, or so, 85 to 90%, are using an electronic device within an hour before bedtime. And so this is an area we can target for improving upon and just making them aware that this can impact their sleep quality. Yeah, and that education piece is tough, especially with the younger athletes. Um, do you find that the younger athletes are, are harder to reach with, you know, these ideas of, you know, watching what they're eating beforehand and, you know, getting you know, all that? I think I've seen you allude to like sort of an hour of decompression before they get to bed and the screens and, you know, the sort of routine of getting into bed and, and stuff like this? Do you find it's harder with the younger athletes? I think with the younger athletes, they're, they are more prone to use electronic devices before bedtime. And they're not as experienced to where they would know that this might impact them. So we haven't formally done, I think, with the data that we're going to have with the 200 athletes, that we could definitely look at age and see if, you know, see what kind of behaviors are going on related to age. But overall, yeah, I would say that that uh, younger athletes um, maybe aren't quite as educated as to what, how this impacts their sleep. Okay. And is there, you know, I think a lot of coaches probably then wondering, so then like, is there anything with the younger athletes that you've found that maybe helps them? You know, is there a way to phrase it or is it, you know, in this raw data that you're able to say, you know, oh, look, you had more sleep or you tried, you know, putting your phone away or whatever um, and, and your performance went up? Like, is there a good way to go after that with the younger athletes in terms of trying to make change? Yeah, I think, you know, um, Related to the electronic device use, so our kind of our initial research has shown that there, it's very hard for, for you to put the device away. I mean, obviously, that's kind of the, the recommended advice is to put it away an hour before bed because it's not just about the blue light, but it's also about the content can be exciting. And so because we know this, you know, we might recommend um, blue light blocking glasses to where that, if we know that they're not gonna put it away, well, at least we can kind of mitigate that with the blue light blocking glasses, um, mitigate that exposure. How so, do you, uh, just on that note, how do you feel like there's the blue light glasses, I love the rose tinted glasses, I wear them and Molly makes fun of me. Um, but with the, you know, there's the Flux app for the, the desktop, and then there's also the iPhones tried to release sort of a night shift app. Like, do you find that those are, are, are those actually doing what they're, where I'm assuming they're doing? I think, I think they're, they're better than nothing. Um, but if you compare using blue light blocking glasses with, with the F, the Flux on, you notice a huge difference in what you're seeing. So it's better than nothing, but I don't think it's quite doing enough. And then you also have to worry about the brightness. So the Flex apps, they'll adjust the color or the wavelength of the light, but not necessarily the brightness. And so the brightening, brightness can be alerting as well and can suppress our melatonin. Right, yeah, that make, you definitely notice like when you put the, the, the rose-colored glasses on, they it's uh, definitely different than it is with the screen. Um, and, and your point, I think, is almost the more important point is like the content is, is very exciting and you can constantly get that stimulation from like going to the next, you know, clickbait ad or 
clickbait article. What is the site with the clickbait? Buzzfeed. Yeah, like the next Buzzfeed article mm-hmm. or something, right? Like it's that's the idea of the stimulation, right? It's like it never ends, and so that's the that's the addictive property, right? And that's I think that gets missed a lot. Everyone's on to like this hack of the app to make the light go away, but we're missing the key point with the phones, right? Yeah, it's it's about the content as well and how stimulating that can be. Okay, awesome. So let's go on here to, I have a, a bunch of things I want to sort of touch in on, and I think that's great. You've given us sort of a brief, you know, intro to sleep hygiene, um, you know, this idea of routine. Um, something I'm curious about is as far as sleep position, so how we're laying in the bed, is, is there a bad position? Like not necessarily what's the optimal position, but is there one that you don't like to see people have? You know, is there, is there some sort of guidance as to how we set ourselves up for, for sleeping? Well, I think uh, there's definitely not a one-size-fits-all position for everyone, but if you do look at uh, those who sleep on their backs, they're more likely to have snoring um, because of the gravity involved uh, in the airway. And so there was also another study looking at, uh, they compared quality sleepers versus people who were reporting poor sleep quality. And they found that those, those who were the good sleepers actually spent less time on their back. So I would say if you have to choose, um, you know, sleeping on your side is probably the best position because then you're not more prone to snoring and those kind of things. Now, okay, so then is there a better way to lay on your side? Because, I mean, I've heard laying on your stomach puts your neck at sort of a crazy angle. Mm-hmm. Now, laying on your side, I've seen a couple different arrangements where you sort of have your one arm behind you and then one leg sort of up on a, a pillow or, you know, a bolster or something. You know, is, that, is it worth sort of bolstering yourself up and sort of locking yourself into a position a bit so that you're not so prone to tossing and turning and you're getting that sort of cervical alignment? Yeah, so I'm not, I'm definitely not a position, sleep position expert, but um, my cousin is actually a chiropractor and, and he, he recommends having the pillow in between your legs. So sleeping on your side with the pillow in between your legs will, will help with that alignment. And I think it will help you stay in that position as well. Okay. I think that makes sense. So the next logical question then related to your first comment about the back pain. So is snoring an issue or when is snoring an issue, I think, is, is worth discussing. Mm-hmm. So snoring can, so in those people that snore, about 50% have sleep apnea, which is a very serious condition where you stop breathing during the middle of the night. So I think if someone is snoring, you have to think about are they waking up gasping for air? Are they choking? Um, has their partner witnessed um, them stop breathing? And if that's the case, to definitely go to your doctor and you know get it checked out by a sleep disorder physician. Um, as far as you know, snoring in general, it's it's a partial obstruction of the airway. And it can also disturb your partner as well. So it's not just about the person snoring, but it also can be about disturbing your partner during sleep. So, Amen. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's that's interesting. You must snore then. I, I'm the awkward silence. Yes, I guess. Yeah. Um, on and off. So I think I've always tried to force myself either to lay on my side or on my back. And so I think it's usually when I'm on my back that yeah. I would do it. So, mm-hmm. so, so, so I don't know that I necessarily wake up, though, due to it. But so I'm wondering if that's like, would, would you say that that's sort of a first step, though, to maybe try not laying on my back as much, maybe with this bolstering side sleeping idea? And seeing if that, you know, if Molly notices a, a decrease in snoring and, and maybe sleep quality improving or something as well. Like, would that be sort of the course of action, given that I don't necessarily have any major adverse sort of sleeping complaints at the moment? Yeah, so position, that's, that's a huge thing. So I would definitely try sleeping on your side. Um, you want to avoid alcohol right before bed, alcohol and sedatives, because those can relax the airway and kind of 
relax those tissues that create the soaring. Um, and then just making sure, you know, sometimes during allergy season we get kind of stuffed up. So making sure, you know, maybe using a neti pot or that kind of thing if it's allergy related. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And especially actually the alcohol thing. I think it's usually on nights where we're out and maybe have a couple glasses of wine that someone who will remain nameless starts uh, starts snoring a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, I, I think that's good. So now what I wanted to do was go through a few more of the sort of common kooky things that maybe some people might use. So the first I want to start with was, you know, maybe it's a, a risque one, I'm not sure, but melatonin. How do you feel about melatonin, you know, when and when not, would it be advisable, I guess? Mm-hmm. So melatonin is, has been shown to be effective at shifting your circadian rhythm. So it's not necessarily been shown to be an effective sleep aid, but more in line with if you're, if you're a night owl, to try and shift your rhythm to an earlier time, uh, or if you're if you're traveling, so for jet lag and those kind of things, it's been shown to be pretty effective. But otherwise, as just a normal sleep aid to take every night before you go to bed, um, probably not recommended. Okay, that that makes sense. I think that's been my experience as well. You know, when we've traveled to Europe for races or something, it's it's generally helped with trying to get some sort of sleep when we get there, and it's you know, feels like nine a.m. but it's nine p.m. wherever yeah. we've arrived. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any concern with using magne or sorry with with um, melatonin? Like, is there anyone who wouldn't want to look into it, or you know, a, a duration of use where it becomes an issue to to try using it? Um, I mean, it's not a very well-regulated substance, so, you know, it's considered a supplement, so, you know, it's it's not very well-regulated, so I, it's, you know, children have been using it without a lot of testing, so there hasn't been a lot of studies showing how this might impact them, and it, it's widely spread. So I would say if you don't have to use it, you know, try to avoid it if you can and try to think of why you would be taking it. So is it because you have insomnia symptoms where you're having a hard time going to sleep or staying asleep and try to maybe use behavioral modification techniques um, to mitigate those problems instead of abusing melatonin? Yeah. I'm so glad you said that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great answer, right? Like whenever we're looking at these hacks or, you know, things to try and, you know, boost our sleep or whatever, then it, it's important to always circle back and ask why, you know, basics, the basics don't work, right? We do that with training too. Everyone wants this, you know, super high intensity, whatever, but it's like, what's been, what, what works generally if we don't go to excess and, you know, do it, you know, on a routinized sort of, you know, regular basis and stuff. Mm-hmm. And from, from our perspective, in the after acute screening questionnaire, we ask, do you take medications, either prescription or over-the-counter, to help you sleep? And from our perspective, this is kind of a red flag for us if we see an athlete taking this medication, you know, five to seven times per week. It's almost a red flag for us to kind of probe in to see why they're doing it. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm wondering now, um, another one that I've seen people use a fair bit is uh, magnesium. Do you have that's, it? that's come up under, under debate at yes. a couple of our we, talks. Yes, one of the talks we had, someone suggested magnesium, and someone did not agree with the use of magnesium at all, which seemed really controversial for magnesium. But how, <laughs> how do you feel about magnesium? I know, you know, magnesium can help with leg cramping and those kind of things, and and also, you know, put it in the bath before you go to bed, um, you know, soak in that kind of thing, and it can be helpful. There isn't, to my knowledge, a lot of research out there on the effects of magnesium on improving sleep quality. Okay, yeah. fair enough. 
Um, and, and I mean, again, we can come back to why aren't we getting it in the diet? And you know, could mm-hmm. we could we be consuming you know magnesium rich foods, fruits and vegetables, and so forth? Um, mm-hmm. What else here? You know, I, I, as part of the routine, do you recommend some sort of like uh, foam rolling or like yoga or something like that? You know, as part of that routine to sort of get that phone away and sort of relax. You know, some deep breathing type stuff. Is there anything that you prefer? You know, as far as a, maybe a movement therapy as part of that routine? Definitely. So, the first uh, hour before bed, you can kind of parcel it into sections. So maybe the first uh, twenty minutes to prepare for the next day. So, you know, get your clothes ready for the next day, those kind of things, your lunch made, that kind of stuff. And then um, from there, maybe do more hygiene activities. So take a shower, brush your teeth. And then the last part before bed should be more relaxing activities. So even reading a paper book with, with a little lamp or doing deep breathing exercises or meditation um, right before going to bed to kind of prepare your body prepare your body for sleep okay that makes sense yeah I usually try and get athletes who are struggling with that but then also maybe not getting any of their like stretching yoga mobility time in there to maybe, you know, get on the foam roller or, you know, a lacrosse ball or something and try and just focus on relaxing into it. And, you know, we, we emphasize no pain face, but trying to relax into it to try and get some of that parasympathetic sort of down regulation. Um, yeah, I think that's a great idea to do, yeah, more relaxing activities. Yoga and stretching definitely can help prepare yourself to wind down prior to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. I found that it's, it's good, especially for the athletes that don't, you know, they're not good at just sitting quietly or sitting in a dark room or, you know, aren't really into reading paper books or whatever. Right. And it's maybe something to, you know, before they jump into bed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so we've talked a bit about blue light and the yellow tinted stuff. Um, talk about I think one of the other things we were, we were thinking about is, uh, what about all of the teas, like the chamomile, sleepy time, all that stuff? Is there any actual like, reason that they're good other than being tasty? Um, to my knowledge, there hasn't been any research on the effectiveness of chamomile tea. Um, I think it, it kind of fits in with the whole relaxation thing, mm-hmm. so it's not necessarily the specific tea that you're drinking, but more the ritual of... I was going to say, yeah, maybe the routine and stuff, Mm -hmm. and and maybe the warm beverage, and yeah, yeah. Yeah, can so I wouldn't disregard it, but um, I don't think it's the actual substance that's making you sleepy. So you don't necessarily need to pay $10 for the, like, organic chamomile tea. You can probably get, like, a, a more basic tea. Yeah, I think so. Okay, very good. So now I I had a question, one of my, I guess, towards the end here, but I got a couple more here. And so the one question I wanted to know, you know, maybe relating back to that idea of getting athletes to buy into this sleep, you know, and maybe the people who think they only need three hours, you know, do you have any examples or case studies of, you know, maybe we have an athlete who isn't sleeping or is one of these four hour a night people? You know, and then there's been an intervention, they've tried it, you know, they committed to a month and then they win the world championships or something. Like, is there, mm-hmm. is there something like that maybe that you can sort of share with us? Yeah, so we did a project, so we've worked with a few teams now, so we've started working with the national curling team and then kind of moved there to rowing, so we worked with the women's eight rowing team and now we're working with the speed skating team. and. The basic design is to kind of look at their sleep at baseline, um, provide a few interventions, and then look at their sleep um, during that sleep optimization phase. And what we found with the rowing team was that, you know, there was one athlete in particular, you know, she was only getting about six hours of sleep per night. And with our interventions, we recommend to increase your nighttime sleep to do some daily napping and then to limit that technology before bed. Um, she found she was 
she it made a huge difference in her ability to maintain high performance throughout the week. Uh, she felt more alert, and just even her mood was was very improved. Um, so, and with that study in particular, we asked them at baseline, how satisfied are you with the quality of your sleep? And we found that only 25% of the athletes were satisfied with their sleep. And when we, when we asked them the question during the sleep optimization phase, we found that over 80% were satisfied with, their, with the quality of their sleep, showing that you know these interventions are probably useful at improving your sleep quality. And we're going to, we haven't analyzed the results yet, but we do want to try and link it to performance to see if it made an impact on performance. That's awesome. Um, so yeah, so in, in that terms, then the idea that I, I'm wondering here then is, you know, the athletes are perceiving, you know, whether they have they're satisfied with their sleep. Um, but is there a point where, like, how do we know whether someone's sleeping well, right? Like that perception is worth something. But what about, you know, the the guy who says that he again four hours of sleep a night, but you know, we're saying I don't know if your sleep's that good, or you have the person who's been snoring for thirty years you know, not complaining about it, but, you know, they could maybe do better. You know, I guess, I guess what is good sleep, I guess, is maybe my question. Yeah, but. it's a little oversimplified, I'm sure, but. Yeah, so it's, it's very interesting because I was just talking with Dr. Samuels about this the other day as I was kind of analyzing the data that we did find um, huge improvements in subjective sleep, we found improvements in mood, we found decreases in fatigue, that kind of thing. But when we looked at their overall sleep, it didn't really change that much from baseline. So it's, I think it's difficult to link sleep with performance just because there's so many other factors going on um, that affect performance, you know, nutrition and training and those kind of things. So um, I guess to get at your question, you know, what is good sleep, we always go back to the, the three factors, quantity, quality, and timing, and does that, does that uh, are you feeling refreshed from, those, uh, from the sleep that you're getting? Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think that's. I think that makes sense. I mean, I think we can always step back to you know how is performance and are you getting to your day, you know, and, and like you say, I mean, it is. If the person's happy, then they should be good to go. If they're not happy with their sleep and they feel drowsy, then you know there's maybe something to improve there. Um, to that same end, you know, what is your opinion then of sort of the sleep tracker watches and that sort of stuff? I haven't seen anything that's super compelling about the accuracy, but do they serve a, a purpose for some of these people who have disrupted sleep or who aren't sleeping a lot? I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the sleep trackers because of the research that has shown that they can overestimate sleep by as much as an hour per night. So you have to really think about uh, is the information you're getting quality and kind of take that into consideration that they're probably going to overestimate your sleep and the fact that there's no way they can get at uh, deep sleep versus light sleep because in order to do that you would need an EEG. Um, but I think, I guess comparing when you look across time, they may be useful at comparing, you know, okay, what happened when I did a technology curfew an hour before bed for a week? Did that change any of my parameters? Um, so I don't think they're completely useless, but you just have to keep in mind the limitations. Yeah, yeah. I have a lot of trouble not damaging or losing activity travel tracker watches yep, so we're on what number four right now yeah so i've gone back to just sort of assessing how i feel in the morning and adjusting from there but uh yeah i've never been that impressed with the sleep quality the sleep tracking aspect of them the steps i guess are maybe intriguing but perhaps as overestimated as the sleep i don't know but um interesting yeah i think 
I think um, there's certain apps you can do where you you put like right before you go to bed you hit go to sleep and then when you wake up you know you hit wake up and so that type of tracking is probably more useful than just going off what your watch is saying. Yeah, for sure. We've been really... Also... Oh, go ahead. Oh, because there's also, you know, if in uh, questionnaires, people have a hard time remembering, oh yeah, what, okay, what time did I go to bed last night? What time did I wake up? And, you know, trying to remember your the time that you've spent in bed versus actually pressing when you go to sleep and pressing when you wake up and getting information that way. I love that. I think it goes both ways too, right? Like there's been so many nights where I'm like, oh my God, I didn't sleep at all or, you know, total like overnight work thing. And I actually probably slept like five hours. And then there are tons of nights where I'm like, yeah, I definitely got eight hours where I couldn't have gotten more than six. So it's funny yeah, how you look so back. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes, you know, that's, that's not necessarily talking about the quality or how much time you were asleep, but at least that's sort of maybe documenting when the phone went away and when the phone came back out or something, yeah, right? which is maybe a valuable metric in itself. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, I think you also have to be realistic with, you can't really go off necessarily how long you spent in bed trying to sleep because you're going to wake up during the night throughout the night, you know, you're going to have a waking, it's going to take you a little bit of time to fall asleep. And so kind of, if I go to bed at 10 and I wake up at six, I didn't just get eight hours of sleep because of the time it takes you to fall asleep and the number of wakings throughout the night. So being realistic about the time you're actually sleeping. Yeah, I think that makes sense. On the note of uh, wakings, is there a number where you feel like it's getting problematic? Like, you know, someone's going to have to go to the washroom three or four times. Are they always waking at 3 a.m. is another sort of common symptom I see. You know, is there something, any red flags as far as wakings that, that you look for? So in our, in our questionnaire, you know, we ask, um, do you have issues maintaining sleep? And we you know, is it one to two times per week, three to four, five to seven? So when we get into the five to seven times per week having issues staying asleep, that's kind of a red flag on our part. So I think, you know, waking up to use the bathroom once a night is, is, is okay, but once you get into staying awake for a long period of time during the night, that's when, that's when we that's when we have issues. That's when there could potentially be a problem. And, and is there a, a common cause of that, like, or causes of that? Like, what, what often is related to that idea of, you know, maybe they get to sleep well, but then, you know, again, they're up to the bathroom multiple times or the, even the once, and then they, you know, they're up the rest of the night because they got up to go to the bathroom seemingly. Is there a common, like, cause of that? Well, I think uh, you have to kind of look at, is there potential sleep disorder underlying the awakening? So are they stopping breathing and then that's what's waking them up? Or are they kicking their legs and that's kind of the underlying reason? So you have to think about um, what could be causing the awakenings. Is it an underlying sleep disorder? Or um, is it related to stress? So obviously high-performing athletes are under a lot of stress. And um, is that what could be causing those awakenings? And then giving them the tools to, to be able to, the techniques to be able to get back to sleep in a quickly manner, in a quick manner is very important for us. Yeah, I think that, that makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, that circles back to the idea of, you know, looking at maybe that sleep position for the sake of snoring, maybe. Um, you know, even in the routine sometimes, if it, if it is going to the washroom for real, have you seen athletes where they're just drinking too much later in the day? Is that is that an advice that you might give sometimes? Too much of the sleepy time tea? Too much sleepy time tea? So uh, we actually did a study where we compared uh, Canadian elite athletes versus normal control group, and we found that the athletes had significantly more disturbances related to getting up to use the the bathroom and we think it's related to you know that late night hydration 
And so trying to, sh to shift the hydration earlier in the day is, is one piece of advice we give. We don't want to reduce the hydration, but, but probably shift it to an earlier part in the day and then maybe sipping on water before bed instead of guzzling of a glass of water. Yeah, you see that a lot, especially around like performance and stuff. And then it's like a, a mean circle, right? Where they're either drinking the water because they're nervous and then they're waking up too much. And then they're nervous because they're waking up too much. And then, you know, it's a spiral into their performance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, definitely having the technique, like uh, when you do wake up to try and reduce that sympathetic nervous system activity, um, activate that parasympathetic nervous system with with different breathing techniques, relaxation, um, not staying in your bed for too long if you've been awake. So if it's been about 30 minutes, you want to get up out of bed so that you don't start associating your bed with being awake. Right. Yeah, and it's funny. I've had a... Recently, I've started that awareness and had that sort of like, if I can't get to sleep, then I'll get up, you know, and maybe just go sit in, even in a chair, or maybe read or something for even just five minutes, come back, and then so often it's just, boom, back to sleep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just sort of that reset where you, you change what you're thinking about rather than laying in bed, tossing and turning or something. Distracting yeah. both ways. Right. Mm -hmm. there, there's actually one more technique that I really like that I use for myself. Um, I have two small children, and they wake up pretty often, and then I'll be wide awake laying there, and it, it's called cognitive shuffling, where you think of a word, so you think of the word, let's say, bedtime, and then you imagine all the objects that you can think of that start with B, and then after you've thought of all of them that you can, you move on to E, and then D, and T, I, M, E, and it's amazing. Like, I will never make it to the end of the word because it just helps me go right back to sleep. I love that. <laughs> huh. Yeah, you should try that next time. That's a good one. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I have trouble with things like that. I'm trying to count my strokes while swimming right now, and I can't make it to the end of the pool. So. Yeah, but if you were asleep... Yeah, maybe you... I'd just fall asleep, or I'll yeah. start falling asleep in the pool. Yeah, that might, that might be why you can't count. You yeah. just, your body is I'm trying to keep asleep. you from falling asleep. Yeah, could be. Could be. Um, Awesome. So those are some really good techniques. So I think just to finish then, uh, is there anything, you know, as far as like a good sort of practical advice that you sort of leave most athletes with when you're, you are counseling them as far as, you know, making sure their sleep is high performance sleep. You know, we don't want normal sleep. We want that high performance sleep. So is there, you know, what, what is sort of that big advice that you tend to, to give most people? Well, a lot of the times we don't see athletes napping very much. We haven't talked about napping too much, but napping can be useful at, you know, boosting our mood, improving our alertness, uh, those kind of things. So a lot of times we will see athletes that don't even, they might nap one time during the week. And for us, you know, we recommend a daily 20-minute nap. Keep it short, so set your alarm maybe for 30 minutes and um, try and get at least 20-minute nap in, which will be very effective at improving your alertness and reducing fatigue. So if, if your athletes aren't napping to try that strategy, we actually had one um, national team wrestler, female wrestler, who came into our clinic at the Center for Sleep, and she had issues, you know, she just wasn't very rested and recovered. Um, she would wake up a lot during the middle of the night. So we gave her kind of techniques for that. But the one, she was not napping whatsoever. And we told her, you need to plan in napping like it's part of your training. And she came back a few months later and just in, had incorporated that nap and felt so much better, could maintain her um, performance during her practice where she would before she would feel like she would kind of peter out and now she could maintain that throughout and so napping is is huge for athletes it's funny that's something i you know associate one of my best seasons i ended up it was fifth in nationals which in canada is actually pretty good for mountain biking 
Um, but it, like really tight that season. I think it was like top five was within like two percent or something. And I had always the top five was always the goal, and I really put the push on that year. And I napped every day after training. I'd come in, recovery shake, nap, and then have another meal. And like like clockwork, like the entire summer, uh, actually all winter and the summer. So like that entire sort of training season. And yeah, like it was, I would say next level. Now, making myself do that now as life gets busier is tougher, but it's definitely, even just for the meditative break, I don't even know if I necessarily need to sleep, but just that pause in the day is, is pretty effective. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, one of the things we're gonna look at in the data that we've collected so far is, for example, looking at those curlers and those rowers who napped and see how that might impact their performance. So maybe they didn't increase their nighttime sleep substantially, but but what does it look like in those who who napped and how does their mood change and how does their performance possibly change? Yeah, you wonder if you see like a, a very direct correlation between, you know, the, either the better performances or the happier or, or whatever, you know, you have with just the when the athletes are napping. Mm-hmm. That'd be quite yeah. interesting. Awesome. Is there anything else you wanted to add, Amy? Um, I think, I guess the one thing that I hadn't mentioned was to kind of think of your sleep um, across the week. So don't be so rigid to, you know, let's say you think you need nine hours of sleep to perform your best um, every night. but to be a bit more flexible. So can I get some of that nine hours with a nap or can I maybe sleep in a little bit on my off days or go to bed early and try and, um, try and think of sleep, I guess, across the week. Think of if I, if I have this schedule, how can I get that nine hours across the entire week? So um, really being flexible. And that's important for these athletes who are traveling around, you know, the continent, if not the world, right? Because, you know, you're going to have a transcontinental flight and, you know, you're going to lose a bunch of hours. So how can yeah. you make that up, right? Yeah. And um, and if you're, again, if you're preparing for an important event to try and bank sleep going into that event, so you know you're going to maybe not get a good night's sleep right before the event, but can you get more sleep going into that event so that it won't necessarily impact your performance if, if you do get a crappy night's sleep? Um, That's awesome. I, or I, going into travel, you know, you're gonna you're you're gonna lose sleep changing time zones. So can you get a bit more sleep? Can you bank some sleep going into the the sleep loss period? That you actually brought up a, another interesting point. The, so the night of the event is something, and I've always told athletes, and maybe it was a bit of a dirty trick, and I just would always say, you know, the night before the race isn't a big deal. If we don't sleep perfect, you know, it's not going to affect that day's performance. You know, just don't stress on it. And usually the dirty trick was they just would sleep because now they weren't worried about how they had to sleep perfectly. <laughs> but is there, like, I mean, I've seen a bit of mixed research, but what, you know, you've seen a lot more than I have. What what is the you know the answer as far as like does that night before like truly matter or when does it matter you know for the sake of performance? I think you know if you were to pull an all nighter or maybe only get two hours of sleep before the night before the night of event that it could definitely um, impact you, but if you maybe are getting you know five or six hours. But up until that point, you've been getting, you know, your normal eight and a half hours. It's probably, it's not going to make that much of an impact. Awesome. So my lie was semi-true. I like it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And uh, there's actually some interesting studies looking at uh, if there's some sleep deprivation studies. So there was one study where it showed they told this group to get more sleep coming into the sleep deprivation experiment and the other group just got the normal amount of sleep that they were getting and they showed that the group who got more sleep prior to the sleep deprivation period actually performed much better than those who just got the normal amount of sleep showing that this this idea that thinking sleep can can improve your performance in 
a sleep deprivation or sleep restriction type of situation. That's awesome. Yeah, so you can't you can indeed bank it. Um, so the only other thing I that this last point of yours that we're going to drag lots of awesome ideas out of now. Um, is there a way, you know, if we are banking sleep, we want to generally wake up at the same time of day or go to bed at the same time of day? You know, how do, where do we fit in that banked sleep if we are, you know, trying to make up or, or bank the sleep? Where, what's the best way to do that without throwing the circadian rhythms off or, you know, taking a bunch of grams of melatonin? Yeah, that's a great point because, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to sleep in on your day off, you know, two hours past your habitual uh, wake-up time because then that night it's just going to push your sleep period back uh, further and so we always want to try to keep a consistent wake time if we can and to maybe not differ that by an hour so maybe you could bank a little bit sleep in a little bit let's say a half hour um, to try and keep that wake time consistent but trying to go to bed earlier um, won't affect your circadian rhythm as much and then trying to nap is another way that we can make up for for or or to bank more sleep going into an event all right so peter's gonna have to start napping more as yeah. we're, we're getting out of this i like it i've been trying to do more um, there was a book I read and that I think the year that got me onto it was, I think it's like take a nap, save your life or something like that. Have you heard of this book? Yes. Yes. We actually have that book here at the center for sleep that we recommend. Okay. For awesome. I'm, I'm psyched to hear that. Cause it was, it convinced me like, again, that's, that was why I started doing it. I was like, Oh, this seemed like they're really convinced this is a big deal. So I, I did it. And like I said, my experience was that it, it worked really well. I think a lot of things that year contributed to it but I mean that was definitely part of me being able to train better and be amped and recovered and stuff so um. yeah that uh that book so it's by Sarah Mednick so she she did a number of research studies on napping at Harvard and so um it's it's a bit old so I don't remember what the year is but it's still it the the information in there is really good at even for those people who have a hard time napping, so certain strategies to try and help you fit in time to nap and strategies to help you fall asleep quicker. Great. Is there any other books that you love or that you do rent out from the, from this, from, you know, to the athletes while you're, you're there? Yeah, so we have um, Thinking to Sleep is a good one. So if you have any athletes or anyone suffering from insomnia, it, it has some really good tips in there on ways to change your thinking about sleep. So it's, uh, it has cognitive behavioral therapy principles, which is really effective at treating insomnia. So Thinking to Sleep um, by Judith Davidson, I think. Is, is a good book that we recommend here. Awesome. Yeah, that's good. It's always good to have a couple of resources and see, you know, sort of what have been, what's influenced people. Um, so I think just to finish up then, uh, like I, I sort of alluded, I found you through Twitter, which is a, a great resource. I really like it uh, for finding people like yourself. I really um, like Twitter. I do. I like Twitter. Uh, <laughs> I would invest in it if I had money. <laughs> um, so you're sleep for sport on the Twitters. Is that true? Yes. So sleep, and then the number four, and sports. Four. Awesome. And so we'll link to that for sure. Do you have any other sites or resources or Instagrams or anything that you, you want people to check out? I feel like a sleep Instagram is just kind of weird. <laughs> um, so if you want more, so my Twitter account is more focused on uh, sleep and performance in athletes. But if you want more general information, about sleep in general, uh, you you could check out Center for Sleep. So at C-E-N-T-R-E and then F-O-R sleep. Um, that's that's where I'm currently working and and they have a lot of great information on there for, for anyone related to sleep. And you link to that, I think, from your Twitter profile, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much yeah. for taking the time today, Amy. Um, really appreciate it and yeah we'll be sleeping better I think. yeah hopefully yeah hopefully a lot of people will benefit so yeah sleep sleep well 
<laughs> All right. Take care. We'll talk to you awesome. soon. Thank you so much, Amy. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Uh, to check out all of the show notes for this episode, you can head over to consummateathlete.com. And we would love to hear from you about what you thought about the podcast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Molly J. Herford. And at Peter Glassford. And we would also love it if you would pop over to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast so you can tell every time a new episode, a new sport comes out. And if you would leave us a review, let us know how you're, how you're liking it, how we're doing, if there's anything you'd like to hear more of, that would be amazing. And you can find us over on Facebook now, uh, facebook.com backslash consummate athlete. Thanks again for tuning in, and we will see you next time.